0: I often think about if we're blaming immigrants, which seem to be the ultimate scapegoat, what are we not talking about? If we blame COVID on them, if we blame the economic woes, it's easier, right? Uh, because of the long history of xenophobia to do that than to actually tackle real problems that might improve everyone's life.
1: Welcome to A History of Xenophobia. From the gold mines to the rise of the far right today, my name is Ariel Glynn, and I'm the host of this History Hope podcast series. History Hope is based at the School of History at University College Dublin in Ireland. You can find a huge range of podcasts and videos showcasing historical research on our website, historyhope.ie. You can also follow us on various social media, and if you want to get in contact with us about the series, please email info at historyhope.ie. Maddalena Marinari, is Associate Professor in History at Gustavus College in Minnesota. Magdalena has published extensively on immigration restriction and immigration mobilization. She is the author of Unwanted, Italian and Jewish Mobilization Against Restrictive Immigration Laws, 1882 to 1965, which came out in 2020 with the University of North Carolina Press, and which will provide the foundation for much of what we will discuss in this episode, since it focuses on U.S. opposition to Italian and Jewish immigrants in the late 19th century and early 20th century, and outlines how Italian and Jewish communities in the U.S. responded. Something that will also inform our discussion is a special issue of the Journal of American History from 2022 that Magdalena co-edited with Erica Lee on the Immigration Act of 1924, which saw the U.S. introduce an immigration quota system that substantially restricted immigration until the 1960s. Magdalena also co-edited with Maria Christina Garcia and Madeleine Su, A Nation of Immigrants Reconsidered, U.S. Society in an Age of Restriction, 1924 to 1965. And she's the second related co-edited anthology coming out in 2023 with Maria Christina Garcia titled, Who's America? U.S. Immigration Policy Since 1980 with the University of Illinois Press. Madeleine is also one of the scholars behind the excellent hashtag immigration syllabus, an online tool for anyone interested in understanding the history behind current debates on immigration in the US. So Magdalena, in in these writings that I've outlined, you've basically covered nearly everything in US immigration since the 1860s, which is kind of where we left off. Um, we, we had spoken to H- Hidetaka Harata about the treatment of Irish migrants in the mid-19th century. And then we also talked about Chinese migration with uh, May Nye. So that was up to the 1880s. And this is where your book kind of started. So after after that period, um, you know, you, you had huge amount of immigration into the United States. So in the mid 19th century, you have a lot of Irish coming and Germans. And then towards the end of the 19th century, this substantially starts to change. So you have a lot of Italians and Jewish migrants from Central and Eastern Europe coming wh um, why were Italians and Jewish migrants coming in such huge numbers? I think you, you mentioned that by 1920, the two largest groups of immigrants in the US were Italians with 4 million, and then Eastern European Jews with 2 million, mostly from the Russian Empire. And we know that, you know, millions of Italians were also going to uh, South America, particularly Argentina and Brazil. So why were so many Italians leaving and why were so many Jews leaving?
0: So, first of all, thank you for having me. And it's great to hear that I'm following in the footsteps of two great historians. Um, so, essentially, Italians and Eastern European Jews are part of the largest world migration today. And they have two big reasons um, for which they left. And then some minor one that I'll try to touch on. But first, the first one is economic, right? There is stagnation in most of these European countries. There is also... Um, Political instability and there is a lack of uh, social mobility. And so many of these migrants essentially leave to find better jobs to provide for uh, the families. But for a lot of them, it's also about upward mobility. For Jews, things are um, different in the sense, in addition to the political and economic reasons, a lot of them are fleeing persecution. And that shapes the different ways in which these two groups. Left uh, the very beginning, Italians were most uh, Italian migration was heavily male, also temporary. Many of them, many Italians did not start settling permanently in the United States until the beginning of the twentieth century, in part because of the restrictive immigration laws. European Eastern European Jews, on the other hand, most left in um, families. Uh, only six percent of them uh, went back compared to over 50% when it comes to uh, Italian. And they also had much higher naturalization rates once they settled in the United States, unlike Italians, which didn't really start uh, naturalizing in uh, large numbers until um, the 1910s, always in response to uh, restrictive immigration laws.
1: And yeah, this distinction between how, for instance, Italians would come back in quite large numbers and because it was so male dominated and um, led to some accusations by restrictionists that they they wouldn't integrate properly but then on the other hand as you mentioned uh Jewish migrants returned in very low numbers and they were very good at naturalizing they na- na- naturalized very quickly uh, but yet there was question marks over that the, that they were seen they weren't seen as as being uh, proper americans that they were maybe um yeah, yeah too transnational in their links and things like that so um it, You talk about how um, the importance of the Immigration Restriction League, so this uh, organization that was set up in the early 1890s in Boston by uh, a lot of Harvard graduates and Harvard Associated Scholars, uh, I believe, and and their collection is all online in in Harvard today. Uh, But what kind of rationales did the Immigration Restriction League and, and other restrictionists put forward to try and halt or reduce the number of Italians and Jews coming
0: Right. So one of the reasons why I studied these groups is because it ca- they captured nicely that you just couldn't win whatever you did. Right. Whether you naturalized early or didn't, you were disliked, unwanted, whether you were temporary or permanent, you were unwanted. And so I think those dynamics speak to the fact that there were larger issues. Right. This is the period where a lot of Americans talk about uh, a citizenship crisis. So there is a lot of concern that these people who are eligible to naturalize might not make good American citizenship material. There are several reasons. Um, one, racial, right? These are seen as whites of a different color, right? Uh, there is a high, uh, eugenics, social Darwinism. Uh, Scientific racism are very popular this time. And so many of the descendants of Northern Europeans essentially see these people as inferior. Um, Then there are also cultural differences and uh, and, uh, political differences. The fact that these people did not hail from uh, democracies or uh, republics. And then last but not least, there is also a religious rationale, right? Overwhelmingly. These were the first two groups that in large numbers were uh, Catholic and Jews, right? And so anti-Catholicism and anti-Semitism had a long history already, but the arrival of these two groups in larger numbers than in the past really um, created this sort of anxiety. What I find interesting from the Immigration Restriction League is that uh, they, in addition to some of this rationale, they also tried to in order to convince and rally other politicians to connect as much as possible to immigration groups that are already um restricted particularly Chinese and so oftentimes uh Italians were called the Chinese of Europe and well uh, eastern european Jews were uh perceived as orientals in the south um oftentimes Italians were in particular were compared to african americans um and both being you know dangerous but also even cheaper than uh formerly enslaved people, and so it's 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 a combination of um rationales that seem to appeal to different constituencies right uh each uh, Americans depending on where they were from in the United States, worried about different things. And the Immigration Restriction League, in part because of the pedigree, right, because they had the legitimacy of Harvard behind them, were able to kind of tap into the different stereotypes.
1: Yeah, and I think we'll come back to how uh, diverse these restrictionists were. You know, you mentioned the American South there, you mentioned Harvard scholars, and they brought in uh, people from California, you know, who were very much associated with uh, the anti-Chinese kind of leagues that were set up. Um, you, you talk in the book Unwanted, which is a fab- fabulous book, about how the restriction of Chinese immigration in 1882 opened the door to targeting other immigrants as well. But nativist lawmakers needed much longer to build a case against Southern and Eastern Europeans. And also in the special issue that you edit with Erica Lee, you, you talk about how you know you can't just look at what happened in 1924 without looking at all these different events in the, in the 19th century, including the restrictions put in place towards the Chinese. Uh, why did it take so long? You know, so you we're talking 1890s, this is when the Immigration Restriction League is set up, but it's only really 1924 that real restrictions are placed on on these groups. Why did it take almost uh, around the guts of 40 years for, for these restrictionists to succeed?
0: Yeah, so there are two main reasons. Um, So the the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act, right, did two important things. One, it gave legitimacy to the idea that the federal government was in charge of immigration restriction, which was a very recent development. And two, it legitimized the idea of using race as a reason to um, restrict immigration. But there are two problems. One, um, because the 1882 Immigration Restriction Act was so blatantly racist, uh, it opened itself to several court cases and challenges. And in fact, it took a while for it to uh, become fully enforced. It wouldn't be until really the beginning of the 20th century. And so politicians wanted to make sure that whatever came next was unassailable, right? And, and they were not r- uh, wrong because some of the restrictions that were passed in 1917, 21, and 24 are still around today because they understood that they had to give it a, a veneer of objectivity or even worse, science, right? So that was part one, a legitimate uh, concern about the legitimacy of this kind of legislation. Number two is that despite the stereotypes Most Americans were actually still uncomfortable, uh, at least until the 1910s with World War One, with the idea of restricting the number of immigrants from Europe, even though many of them agreed that Eastern and Southern Europeans were indeed inferior than immigrants coming from Northern and Western Europe. And so the argument took a while. To build up, but it was by by the beginning of the ni- end of the nineteenth, of the twentieth century. It's clear that you need kind of a a big event to turn a lot of people who were anxious about what was happening um, in big cities with industrialization, internal migration, modernization, right? And so the arguments are uh, coagulating, but they're not as convincing. And it wouldn't be until World War One that Americans finally take the leap of faith, right? And so the The rhetoric took longer, uh, but in the end, it led to a series of uh, immigration laws that, as I mentioned before, were were most the essence of which are still in place today.
1: Yeah, I find it fascinating that it took so long. But as you say, a lot of Americans were uncomfortable with this. And this is very clear in association with American presidents, because if you look at the work of people like Claudia Golden and Thorsten Faes, they outline how many pieces or how many bills were brought to different the house and the congress and how they like from 1896 onwards you know they're putting forward these bills regularly but they're and they're getting through sometimes the house sometimes sometimes the senate sometimes both and then often the presidential veto is used and it's sent back and 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 some kind of fudge takes place Um, what why was it that the, the presidents, the American presidents continually, and this, this happens during the First World War as well, as you mentioned, but wh- why were they uh, willing to take such a stance?
0: Yes, and that actually uh, is something that's often neglected in this conversation. But essentially, and until World War I, um, even though a lot of American presidents are not exactly excited about this new immigration, um, they try not to pass excessively restrictive laws for two reasons one foreign policy right they understand that this might be these laws might be alienating um uh, allies and and what happens essentially is that by the time you get to world war one um the structure of power is completely changed right there is a a reliance on experts laws are produced in committees now so it's it looks more like modern day and it's also more systematized um and so that allows Congress to have more leverage than it's ever had in the past, essentially. Um, but the other thing that these political developments do is they, sh- they change immigration from an international issue to a domestic issue, which is something that Americans continue to debate throughout the rest of the 20th century, right? So, for example... Uh, Diplomats and anyone related to, to the State Department are furious over this persistence of these bills that just uh, put the U.S. Uh, in an embarrassing position, right? And so, the other thing that World War One does, along with this uh, political realignment, this different approach to immigration policy as a domestic issue, it brings it finally brings um, the executive, uh, which was really the last stance, the last barrier between. Um, this push for immigration restriction and the passage of uh, stricter laws.
1: Yeah, and I I know in your profile online, you know, you mentioned how global history is is a serious interest of yours. And you see it through your book, you know, that you talk about exclusion of Chinese people. You were just mentioning um some of these diplomatic relations that the US tried to keep. So the Japanese Gentlemen's agreement. So there's, th- they agree on, on a policy whereby the Japanese just don't, they're not discriminated against on paper, but they just don't let people uh, em- emigrate to the United States. And then you have it, it ends by talking a lot about uh, Mexican immigration. You know that that this is an, and also African American immigration from the American South up to the North. So you're covering so many um, bases. But you you talked about how in the early 1900s the U.S. politics was changing and uh, the the importance of uh, these commissions and v- various things like that. And one that is very prominent and and very important is the the so-called Dillingham Commission on Immigration that was set up and like that there was a lot of wheeling and dealing so this was when and and there there were certain uh, pieces of legislation put forward in the late 1890s and early 1900s related to crime and let's say health and things like that to to exclude people and i remember with students i used to bring them to rotterdam to the hotel america site and talk a bit about how people would be lined up and how their clothes would be sanitized and would be put in uh, you know, washed at certain temperatures, and you know they'd be checked for certain diseases. There'd be an oculus looking at their eyes, you know, an American physician, all these kind of things in place. There had been an attempt to bring in a so-called literacy act in nineteen oh seven, whereby people, uh, wh- which would exclude people who who weren't able to read and write, or adults who weren't able to read and write, but this was um, excluded as a kind of a form of appeasement. But in exchange. Uh, they were asked to establish a new commission to study the immigration crisis. Um, So who was Dillingham? What was this commission? And yeah, what kind of controversies did it lead to?
0: Yeah. So it's interesting. I feel for as important as the Dillingham commission is, I don't think we've studied it enough. I think Katie Benton Cohen just wrote a book and she's, she's just tapping uh, the tip of the iceberg. Um, So Dillingham essentially, because of the establishment of new rules depending on seniority, was one of the most powerful uh congressmen in in the US at the time. And essentially he understands that in the new landscape, what he needs is evidence. Um the to this date, this was one of the commissions that had one of the largest budgets in US history. And what it did, it traveled across the country and collected interviews data. There was an army of uh, people who were hired, a lot of them women to collect information. And he was essentially very, what he understood is that he had to be comprehensive, but also methodical. Right. And so for every uh, stereotype that Americans might have had about this new immigrants, he collected evidence, for example, about employment or uh, political activism or crime, um or how many of them ended up in uh, uh hospitals or poor houses, and so despite the fact that uh as critics have pointed out at the time said that um for example, for crime rates, the rates among these immigrants were lower than native born american the the sheer volume that of information that it was produced essentially legitimized for in in the eyes of a lot of Americans um the the need for restriction, right? It also cemented a lot of um, the stereotypes and it was a turning point into uh, convincing even people who had been traditionally skeptical of immigration restriction to start embracing it. And here I'm thinking in particular about Southern politicians who most of whom hailed from areas with very few immigrants, but even the mere um, discussion of threatening the political status quo, because essentially immigrants were also presented as a political force, right? Only voting for their interests who might subvert American ideals. Um, that convinced a lot of um, Southern politicians, for example. And so, but what's the the data piece, the, the amount of data is important, but what it also did, it provided um, a series of recommendations that ended up influencing not just Uh, immigration policy. So the idea of uh, the literacy test, of the quotas, of global caps comes from this commission. There is not an aspect of immigration policy that was passed after the commission that doesn't come out of what the commission said. Even uh, the categorization in terms of how we think about different groups. But the data I collected also influenced uh, social policy in the... um, uh, 1930s during the New Deal, residential segregation. And so I think we, for, we often forget that although its focus was primarily the so-called immigration crisis, the data I collected was then used um, in a lot of different realms, even once immigration had been uh, restricted and declined in, at the beginning of the 1930s.
1: Yeah, and... Maybe one reason that people haven't looked at it in enough detail is because they produced 41 volumes, which is incredible, and which, again, are all online for anyone who's interested.
0: Right now it's easier, right, because you can search it. Uh, And so one thing that is surprising is that, for example, Mexican migration is mentioned very little, but Asian migration is mentioned um, much more than people had anticipated. And in fact, uh, Katie Benton Cohen says that, we have neglected to see the role, the the impetus that it, the hatred towards Asian immigration had behind this commission. In addition to Eastern and um, Southern Europeans,
1: you know, you, I think you you do a really good job of showing, uh, let's say Dillingham, for instance, who, who had very clear links with the restrictionists, and and how you had some scholars like Franz Boas, you know, anthropologist, who who was very much against these um, eugenicist kind of ideas being put forward. Um, but yet the, the commission seemed to favor these, and, and these seem to take precedence in many respects. And building perhaps on the results of that, you, you had from 1912 to 1915 uh, restrictionists proposing several bills to limit immigration. But again, successive U.S. presidents vetoed such measures, but it seemed to be getting closer you know that that um the margin for error was was getting less and in the background you have um various immigration groups um particularly the Jewish community and the Italian community trying to um, fight against these things, and and I mentioned the work of Thorsten Veblen. He, he also talks about how the shipping industries were also trying to, um, you know, lobby against this and and pay certain people to lobby against this because you know this would have a, a, a huge impact on their um on their business if if it did succeed. But you, you see that Dillingham's measure introduced in late 1916, which halted. Uh, which combined halting immigration from East Asia, which you just mentioned, and the Pacific, and then placing restrictions on southern and eastern European uh, migration was a very successful combination. Um, wh- how did this bring together different groups? And, and how important was uh, the First World War in in um, supporting this? Yeah, and it's
0: interesting because now that I've I just finished Working on this special issue, I've come to appreciate even more how much, how important the 1917 Immigration Act was. Uh, and it was important for, I would say, at least a couple of reasons, right? One is the one that you mentioned, that it managed to bring together uh, measures against every group immigrant group that was undesirable, right? It introduced the Asian uh, barred zone, excluding most of the uh, immigration from Asia, for which people had been fighting now for uh, a long time it introduces a uh the literacy test to target Eastern and southern Europeans, and it also starts targeting the emerging immigration from south of the border right and so as I think the fact that it covered so much uh was able to kind of build a broader coalition right because uh immigrants from um, representatives from different parts of the country all saw their immigrant groups targeted one way or another. And then World War One really um, legitimized a lot of the claims, right? There is fear of uh, spies, right? These, these people being uh, threatening American political stability, American political um, foundations. So one is about, right, um, the future of American democracy. The other piece is the, the future of Am- American citizenship. And then... Um, of course, the fear that at the, at the end of the war, as they said, hordes of immigrants, right, of poor, destitute, sick immigrants would come into the country. And it's, it's interesting to see not just the emphasis on um, literacy, race, but in, in times of COVID, it's also this obsession with illness and germs, right? Because those groups were targeted, too. And so... Uh, and, and World War One really um, convinces even the most skeptical, including some older immigrant groups, right, to say perhaps it is necessary to have some control over who comes in and kind of have um, some, me- some way of measuring, right, of deciding who comes in. And I think this is one of the biggest capitulations from, from immigrant groups at the time, right? Because essentially, they, re, they they start believing this rhetoric, right? The United States not only has the power to restrict, but that it should, uh, because the future of the United States is at stake.
1: Yeah, be, because uh, initial efforts um, from the Jewish community, for instance, so there was quite an established um, uh, German-Jewish community already in the United States, and they consistently challenge any, um, the Immigration Restriction League. They set up kind of alternative Uh, groups kind of in opposition to this, and they do get significant help from German uh, groups, from from the Irish, for instance. But then, as you say, this starts to uh, decrease or disappear, particularly during the First World War. So how did German and Italian groups react to this, um, these waves of restrictionism?
0: So one of the things that I find interesting in this story is that restrictionists already had influence and arguments that they could build off of, right? But people, immigrants and immigrant groups mobilizing against immigration restriction really did not have a playbook. And so these groups are part of creating one, right? And they look at Asian immigrants and say, okay, what are they doing? They're going to court, but the court doesn't seem to be as effective. And so they, they realize that the political realm is is where it's at, right? And so they, or they create, organizations that are specifically, right, honing in on uh, lobbying for better immigration policy or for exceptions. And so and this allows them to create a counter narrative, a counter rhetoric, right, that it that is divisive, right. Uh, and critics of immigration restrictions are much more divided precisely because the way the political system is set up. Uh, it essentially pits them against one another, right? And so once restriction becomes the norm, politicians become really good at pitting groups against each other. And the closer you get to the present, the stronger you see that um, happening. And so essentially, you see it in uh, during World War I, but then also in 1921 and 1924, where some of the more established groups start worrying about being associated with these groups that are now undesirable, because they think it would reflect poorly on them it it would project on them this era uh, aura of second class citizenship and maybe limit their political influence their access and their and their power and so there is a kind of a instinct of uh self preservation that starts emerging right, and this is one of the things that I've been long interested in. Why is it so difficult for uh, broad inter-ethnic coalitions to come together? And I think it's in part because of this new structure, right? That makes it really difficult for groups to decide what to prioritize and how to coalesce around sing- main goals, right? We're seeing it today in the U.S. as well, right?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm doing a, a bit of a disservice to your book, focusing on the restrictionist aspect, when your book really hides, highlights the activism of the Italian and, and Jewish communities um actions to try and uh, to, to stop these or obstruct or um to challenge what's going on but it it seems that you know they're horrified by certain um ideas put forward especially early 1900s and and they get you know there are a lot of allies they can uh they can work with but as the amount of allies uh, and as you say during the first world war which seems like you know com- the, the perfect storm, you know, Leo Lucasen, who we also had on the had on the podcast, you know, he has an article about the refugee crisis, so called crisis in Europe, and and how all these different things came together at the one time, and it seems that uh, something similar happens in the First World War in in the United States, but they they these groups the, there's a uh, increasing sense of resignation that instead of c- c- fighting against these measures they say, well, the, the writing is on the wall to a certain extent, so let's concentrate on getting some concessions.
0: Right, yeah. And so yeah. Th- this becomes a huge frustration for later generations, right? They blame uh, these older uh, activists of essentially giving in and compromising. I'm not sure that they had that many options, right? But it's clear that, especially after 1917, that we're headed for more restriction. And, and so the strategy essentially shifts, Away from let's subject to any kind of restriction to can we keep the status quo? Right? Because it's restrictive enough. And within that, can we make enough changes to protect our cohorts, right? And so one of the things that happened, it's also the rhetoric attached to this. And I'm I've been thinking a lot about this giving the spike in anti-Semitism in, in the United States right now, where by the time you get to 1921, the immigration problem is called the Jewish problem, right? And the Jewish community is deeply, deeply concerned about this, really does not want that association, right? And so uh, out in public, they argue that they're fighting for more humane restriction for everyone, but behind doors, they're actually trying to get an exception to the literacy test, right? Um, And and exempt uh, refugees, for example. And they're successful, right? It's a minor but they have to do all those negotiations behind the doors precisely because they want to avoid that connection. Right. Um, and so I, I as I was writing and researching this book, I really struggle. It's like, are they giving up or are they really becoming more pragmatic? Right. And they understand that, as you said, the writing is on the wall and that it's, it would be fr- fruitless to keep saying we want no restriction rather than what can we do? Um, and I, th- from our perspective, the fact that they successfully pushed for the exceptions for family reunion is quite astounding because they understood that family was a central tenet of American identity. And in the short run, it didn't make a, a big difference because immigrants from these parts of the world did decrease. But by the time you get to uh, the nineteen, the end of the 1930s, most immigration is through family reunion, uh, and so their instincts from that point of view were correct, and they turned out to be uh, right in, in at least pushing for those exceptions. And the, And family reunion will be critical in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, right? Uh, the piece, where, the part where they lost um, was their efforts to essentially insist that the United States should not privilege only immigrants with uh, high skills, highly skilled immigrants. Right. Um, but because increasingly low skilled labor was associated with people of color, particularly from uh, the Americas, pretty soon they both both groups decided to abandon that track. Right. And so it's, it's interesting how they're responsible for one of the biggest ways of uh, immigrant sources to the U.S. to family reunion. Uh, but the fact that they give, gave up On fighting for all kinds of immigration to be uh, to the United States, then has also an impact on what the immigration landscape looks today.
1: Yeah, so a lot of parallels with today, you know, this emphasis on refugees and family reunion in in the face of huge restrictionism, something that I I think occurs again today. But um, you you mentioned there how there was how a lot of these. Older traditional immigration communities fell away, and you know that that the Italian and Jewish communities regret this, but they then go down the same route by, uh, as you say, turning their backs on Mexicans, let's say, or African Americans, and and maybe just focusing on their on themselves because you know there doesn't seem to be any kind of broad, broad coalitions at play. And um, but you know, I would have thought to a certain extent. The Literacy Act was something that these restrictionists had been seeking for 20 years or, or so, and, and they finally got it in 1917. And instead of, you know, accepting this and, and celebrating their gains, they, they doubled down. They, they tried to go further, and, you know, you, you do mention a lot of things that were going on, like the Treaty of Versailles and the, uh, the First Red Scare, growing concerns among old-stock Protestant Americans... Of political influence of, of new immigrants, something that we saw with um, in South Africa that you know, white settlers were very wary of Indian immigrants, for instance. You also talk about a rebranded Ku Klux Klan, Henry Ford's anti Semitic uh, propaganda, and then there was this turn towards what you said is a more kind of quantitative approach, so um, they, they take in many respects, what, what we've seen elsewhere with, um, let's say, the attitude towards Chinese in Australia, uh, whereby, um, you know, there was pressure put on the Australians not to bring in race, not to put it front and centre, you know, use numbers, use use other ways to get around it, use a language test, a dictation test to, to get around these things. So it's not um, so obvious. And was this quantification a, a way to get around this? And, and Uh, Maybe you can talk about how they used quotas.
0: Yeah, so definitely, right? So I said earlier on that one of the frustrations the politicians had with the Chinese Exclusion Act is that it was too blatant, right, in its um, use of race and in in its announcing, right, that these immigrants were not wanted. And so since then, they were trying to they had been trying for measures that seemed more objective and scientific, hence the idea of the literacy test, right? And the literacy test is interesting because it's the economist who proposed it was looking at the South south of the United States. Literacy tests had been used to um, essentially disenfranchise African-Americans. And I think a lot of people expected that it would be just as effective for European immigrants. And it wasn't in part because it took so long to pass, right? And so there's all this literature that uh, essentially immigrants learned, right? And they gained just enough literacy to pass the test, right? There were schools that uh, were created specific solely for that purpose. and But there is another uh, a shift away that I think starts with the Dillingham Commission that it's not just about the quality of immigrants that comes in. It's also about the quantity, right? So all of a sudden, yes, we need to monitor for quality because we're deciding future American citizens, but it's also the U.S. just does not want to admit larger numbers, right? And by the time you get to 1924, so they used the census, right, uh, to calculate percentages. In 1921, they used the 1910. Uh, census, but that still frustrates a lot of people because for a lot of people still too many are admitted, right? And so by the time we get to 1924, they they go back to the 1890 census, which would basically guarantee the lowest possible number of people admitted. And um, the yearly cap are quite stark, right? Uh, Not surprisingly, uh, Germany gets the largest quota, uh, but Italy, the, the The dip is drastic. But what the 1924 Act does, um, it starts introducing this idea that the U.S. will only admit a certain number of immigrants, which we still have today. But it also connects immigration and naturalization. In other words, you cannot come unless you're eligible to become a citizen. And so the 1924 Act finds the ideal objective scientific solution to admit as few people as possible from Eastern and Southern Europe. But it also makes sure that there's a, a near complete ban on Asian immigrants. And, But the politicians involved in the passage of the 1924 Act were frustrated that these numbers imposed on Europe were not imposed on the Americas too. And so it's not by chance that exactly two days later, Congress passes legislation to create the border patrol. And so these are like two really intense days uh, in May of 1924, where the landscape of uh, immigration policy and immigration more broadly, like completely changes because you also now have the policing of the border in the South and the North. And the United States also understands something else, that uh, all the restrictive laws are good, uh, but if you can't enforce them, they're useless. And so it's the first time that it creates a substantial budget. And the budget for immigration enforcement has always um, grown, has only grown over the years, right? I mean, right now it's fairly extensive. And so they understand you need the legislation, you need the, but you also need to create the infrastructure and the, the, give them a budget necessary to do that. And I think it's the confluence of, of all these factors that radically changed the landscape of immigration in the 1920s.
1: Yeah, and you, you, your book highlights also the, these growing links between restrictionists and certain departments, you know, homeland security or what would become homeland security and, and things like that, that there, there was this fusion in many respects um, and which helped with budgets as well. But there was this interaction there that uh, it seemed like you scratch our back, we'll scratch your back kind of thing going on. But in the recent special issue of the Journal of American History that I mentioned that you co-edited with Erica Lee, you note that settler colonialism, empire building, and white supremacy in the form of restrictions on free blacks and Native Americans all influenced the quota acts in the 1920s. Could you tell us a bit how? I know it's uh, it's they're all huge issues, but I, I think that's the beauty of of that special issue and. It's present also in your book that there are all these references to it, to China, to the treatment of African-Americans in the South in particular, but it that hasn't really been highlighted that much in the historiography yet. So, you know, Kevin Kennedy and all these other contributors do that.
0: Right. And it, it's interesting because every collaborative project starts with a question for me. And uh, the special issue came from a question I had about how do African American history and Native American history inter, intersect with immigration history and then empire? Right. I think this is a this is a time in U.S. history where the United States is changing dramatically quickly. We always think about um, mass immigration and industrialization, but the truth is that the U.S. is also building uh, an empire, and so concern and trying to figure out how to integrate into U.S. society. For 4 million formerly enslaved people um, and how to bring Native Americans into the. And so I think these conversations, if you look at the um, debates, they're all connected. There are constant uh, references, for example, that we still have the power to decide what to do with immigrants where we don't have a choice with African-Americans because they're here. Right. And the references to citizenship crisis in the, in World War One may always, always tied back to the citizenship crisis that happened after the civil war, right? And so I don't think you can separate the two, right? Not to mention the racial um, components. And the, the obsession with citizenship, you can also see with the granting of citizenship to Native Americans in 1921, um, 1929, and then the discussion about what to do with all these uh, people in the American empire, right? Um, and so while for us, it's interesting to me as scholars, this this Topics have been disconnected, but they're all, for for people involved in these debates, they were all deeply interconnected. And a lot of people felt that in the realm of immigration, you still had a chance to intervene before things got out of hand. And I think that's another reason why 1924 ended up being um So draconian because by then people are aware of World War I and of, for example, the push against the British Empire, what's going on in India, right? There's a lot of concerns about Indian nationalists, for example. And 1924 kind of tries to speak to all of these anxieties. And the special issue is trying to kind of um, tap into these longer trends, right? You cannot connect, for example, you cannot talk about. Uh, the federal government having the federal government would not have been able to have any jurisdiction over immigration law until slavery existed, right? Because then it would have been more problematic. And so I think it's interesting to see how these different kinds of debates all end up converging in the 1920s.
1: Yeah, maybe to end uh, a more kind of attempt to to bring theory and practice together. So in in the series, for instance, in the first episodes, we, we talk to political scientists, linguists, and there's often this debate about whether nativism or xenophobia or opposition to minorities or immigrants, and whether it comes from it's kind of organic, almost from the ground up that, you know, voters and citizens, um, in times of economic crisis, in times of increased immigration or diversity, um, become increasingly hostile towards uh, newcomers or people who they feel aren't part of um, the nation in the same way as, as they might regard themselves. But there is also explanations put forward by people like Cass Mudd that it's it's supply side, it's the agency of those political leaders and political organizations, a bit like the Immigration Restriction League in Dillingham that we've mentioned earlier. Which do you think, usually they're, they're both at play, they're interacting at different parts, but do you think it was more bottom up or top down that this, this uh, hostility towards Italians and Jews, or, or how did this interact?
0: This is a million dollar question. I think about this all the time, especially right now. I would say that it's uh, a mix of both, right? So, and you can really see it in the South, that where politicians shift from uh, "Please come to the South" because we need cheap labor, to "We absolutely do not want you" because we're going to you're going to destroy uh, our uh, democratic traditions, right? And so I think, in general, right, there is a history among, um, regular people, right, of ordinary people, of being uncomfortable with difference, right. But uh, you can also see that um, politicians stoke that fire and use that rhetoric, right, for their own purposes. Particularly once the the more the electorate expands the more aggressive and negative the rhetoric against immigrants becomes. Um, and of course, it also becomes negative against uh, African-Americans. And so um, I don't think it's by chance that um, racism and anti-Semitism in the U.S. always uh, reappears when there is a strong way, um, moments of racial tensions in the U.S., right? Like, like we're seeing in the wake of George Floyd, what the murder of George Floyd and, um, even, you know, uh, the connections between anti-Semitism and LGBTQ rights today, right? And so I think at the time, I would say that it's more a confluence of both. It's both bottom-up and top-down because it's a, it was happening at a time of rapid change, right? I always tell my students, if you went to bed at 1865 and woke up in 1900, you would practically not recognize the United States, right? It's like, what country is this? And I can see how... Um, disconcerning and uh, disorienting that might be. But by the, the beginning of the 20th century, you realize that politicians understand that they can use this anti-immigrant rhetoric to, for their own purposes, not just to be elected, but also to gain more power uh, in Congress, essentially. And you really see it today, right? I, I also, I often think about if we're talking about, if we're blaming immigrants, which seem to be the ultimate uh, scapegoat, what are we not talking about right? Um, m- maybe right? If we blame covid on them, if we blame the economic woos, it's easier, right? Uh, because of the long history of xenophobia to do that than to actually tackle real problems that might improve everyone's uh, life and i I wanna go back to where we started if you don't mind. I think. And tying to what you were saying, it's interesting to me how many of these debates then, because of the U.S. influence, end up affecting what other pe- how people react to immigrants around the country too, right? One of the, because I'm, I'm bicultural, it's interesting to me how some of the stereotypes that you see here in the U.S. then translate in Europe, but adapt, adjust it to the local um, scene, right? And it's, it's really unfortunate, I think.
1: Yeah. The, um, our next episode is about anti-Semitism with William Brewstein And he highlights what you just said as well about this recent rise and, and, and its link to other kind of animosities and uh, opposition. But yeah, I, I see it. It can work the other way as well. So this is maybe something that I'd like to highlight from the, um, the series and also when I teach that you know, if politicians are actually very positive towards this, you know, that this can have a significant impact on on people and and these feelings on the ground and and maybe um, encourage people to think differently, to act differently, to uh, not be as as fearful, for instance.
0: I would say that the media has a role too, right? Because especially right now, because we're heavily influenced by people we I mean, we elect these people for a reason. And if if they have a platform, right, they do end up shaping how we react to these, I mean, definitely challenging moments like COVID, right? Um, But we always have, what I like about history, and it sounds like we agree on this, is that it's also a history of possibilities. Nothing is inevitable, right? Uh, We do have a, the rhetoric could go either way, right? But people make certain choices for specific reasons. And that's why we keep writing about it.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Madalena, for taking time out to talk to us this evening. Um, I, I, I learned so much from reading your excellent book, Unwanted, and my students really appreciate it. And, and, and it's a big favorite of theirs. Um, just thank you so much. Take care of yourself.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: You can find a huge range of podcasts and videos showcasing historical research on our website, historyhope.ie. You can also follow us on various social media, and if you want to get in contact with us about the series, please email info at historyhope.ie.